this morning we're going to be in John chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. So let me read this to us. John 5, beginning in verse 1. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me... That man said to me, take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now, the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. This is the word of the Lord. All right, so this morning, rather than doing a verse-by-verse walk through this text, which is what we most often do, I actually want to jump directly to verse 14 and explore an issue that many of us may be somewhat confused about. And, and here's the prevailing question we're asking today. Is there a connection between the negative circumstances in my life and sins that I have committed? Is there a connection between the negative circumstances in my life and sins that I have committed? Here in John, uh, Jesus is now back in Jerusalem. If you remember last week, the end of chapter 4, he had made the journey to Galilee, a journey of several days to the north of Jerusalem, and and that's been the trajectory throughout this gospel. Jesus has moved back and forth between Jerusalem and Galilee, and now he's back in the holy city for an unnamed Jewish feast, which, by the way, if you've been with us for most of this, have you noticed the role that the Jewish feasts have played in this book thus far. I mean, Jesus has already participated in Passover, uh, and and that will continue to be the case throughout. We'll see Jesus participate in at least three Passovers here in John. Um, He'll participate in what's called the Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, He will participate in Hanukkah as well um, here in John's Gospel. And then we also have this unnamed feast. And we don't know what it is. A lot of people speculate, is this a fourth Passover? Uh, Is this maybe the Feast of Purim, which we learn 
about in the book of Esther in the Old Testament? We don't know, but we know that Jesus is in Jerusalem uh, because he is a good Jew, right? He is there to celebrate this Jewish feast. And he comes to this public pool in the city, pool known as Bethesda. Think, uh, think more of like a public fountain than like a swimming pool. However, it is water that clearly people would get into. And this particular pool was known as a place where people with illnesses or infirmities would congregate because it was believed that the waters of this pool contained healing power. And while the Bible doesn't go into great detail on this, it's possible that there was a lot of just speculation about these healing powers that the pool had. I mean, even in today's world, right, there are like places like this around the world that seem that people claim to have mystical healing powers. And so there may have been a lot of like superstition around this particular place in Jerusalem. Um, There is evidence to suggest that maybe people thought that an angel came down and stirred the waters of the pool, even though in reality it may have just been fed by a spring underground. Um, But that when the waters of the pool were stirred, as it were, that the first one in got to receive the healing powers of the stirred water. And so you get a little bit of a sense of that in the way that this man responds to Jesus. There's no one to put me in the water, meaning I'm not able to scramble and get in there before everybody else. And so I miss out on the healing power of this water or the supposed healing power of this water. And and it it is telling to me, by the way, that that you supposedly have this place of healing, and yet it is just surrounded by people who are not healed, surrounded by invalids and people with illnesses. Jesus, out of all of the people who are around this pool, he selects one man who, I don't know if you noticed, but one man who does not in any way exhibit belief or faith in Christ, doesn't even know who Jesus is. He doesn't even know that Jesus has healed him. And when he does find out, by the way, he goes and reports Jesus to the Jewish leaders who were enraged that this healing had taken place on the Sabbath and that this man had taken up his bed and was walking around. The Jews had all of these uh, regulations related to work on the Sabbath that were not necessarily biblical in nature. They didn't come from the Old Testament law, but they were rules and, and regulations that had been added to over the years. Jesus selects this one man. Uh, he winds up kind of getting in trouble, the man does, because the Jewish leaders see him carrying his bed around on the Sabbath. And so even when he learns who Jesus is, rather than following Jesus, right, rather than like professing faith in Christ or something like that, he, he narks on him to the Jews, right? He like goes back to them and tells them, oh, it was, it was that Jesus guy that healed me, presumably maybe to get the focus off of him. And this is a very different story than the healing we saw last week at the end of chapter four, where a man found Jesus and begged him to heal his son, which Jesus did, and and he did without even being geographically close to this person's son. He did it at a great distance, and John called that Jesus's second sign, or the second miracle that identified Jesus's divinity or deity. But there's also another healing here in John's gospel that I'll, I'll mention briefly today, but we'll look at it in more depth in a few weeks that's found in chapter 9. And it's when Jesus heals a man that was born blind. And that healing really, to me, is the partner 
to this one in chapter 5. It really is the antithesis of this healing we see here in chapter 5. And so let me just preface some of this today by saying we're going to get the ball rolling on some of this conversation today, and then we're going to talk about it even more when we get to chapter 9 in just a few weeks. Look with me at verse 14, where our prevailing question comes from today. Verse 14, Jesus finds this man in the temple and says, see, you are well, sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Which insinuates that the bad things that had happened to this man, such as having whatever infirmity he had had for at least 38 years, that that was the result of sin. So what does the Bible say about this question? Was this man an invalid because of something he had done? And if so, are the problems or the health issues or the traumas in my life a result of something bad that I've done? You know, did my grandmother have Alzheimer's? disease because of some sin in her life? Or on another level, are the people in Ukraine experiencing war and conflict today because they are all sinners? Or uh, I'm sure you've heard things like, did Hurricane Katrina hit New Orleans because it's just an especially sinful place? Like, is is that what's going on here? Y'all let me know when you figure that out. We'll see you next week. No, I'm kidding. Uh, The reality here is that the Bible approaches this question on two different levels. And I'll call the first level the general level, and the second I'll call the specific level. And on the general level, the Bible seems to say, yes, the problems in your life are the result of sin. But on the specific level, the Bible seems to say, maybe but not necessarily. Let's start with the general. Turn with me over to Genesis chapter 2. Where better to start than at the beginning? Genesis 2, starting in verse 15, it says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat, it, eat of it, you shall surely die. Now that's very clear, isn't it? Like the Bible, for all of the things that you could view as being a bit obtuse or a bit ambiguous, that's pretty clear. You can eat any tree except that one. And if you eat that tree, you will die. There's no symbolism there. There's no metaphor there. It's a very clear prohibition as well as a clear declaration of consequences, right? I've told you, if you choose to go against what I've told you, there are ramifications. Now, interestingly, the serpent comes into the picture, right? And when the serpent comes into the picture in Genesis 3, he doesn't refute or argue against the prohibition. Right? He, he doesn't say, God didn't say that you couldn't eat from that tree. That's not what he says, is it? No, what does he say? He refutes the declared punishment. This is verse 4 and 5 of chapter 3. It says, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. 
Now, I have a working theory that that is like a primary tactic of the enemy, that his first move is not necessarily to convince you or me that the sin that you're tempted towards is not not wrong. But, or in other words, that the, the sin that you're tempted towards is actually right instead of wrong. But rather to convince you that nothing bad is going to happen to you if you just try it. If you just dip your toe in the water. And that often is the pattern, or I should say the trap, that we fall into it's to test the water of sin and to find that we don't immediately burst into flames, right? We don't immediately get struck by lightning or hit by a bus. And, and maybe we also find out that it felt good. And so we come back to that pool and we come back to that pool and we come back to that pool until, over time, slowly, to use the language of Scripture, our consciences become seared, they become cauterized, or our hearts become hardened. That because there is not like an immediate consequence, I mean, Adam and Eve don't just suddenly drop dead, right? Because there's not an immediate consequence or backlash we are thus opened up to repeating that action over and over again until we forget that we ever thought it was wrong to begin with. Does that resonate with anybody? Jesus says in John 8 that the devil is the father of lies. And here, the lie that he tells us is not that your sin isn't sin, but that you won't be affected by your sin. And that actually, you may gain something positive that God's been keeping from you for some reason. You can watch a little porn and not have to deal with any major consequences. You can have a slightly inappropriate text conversation with somebody who's not your spouse without real ramifications. You can pour out your anger onto your spouse or onto your children or your coworkers or employees without some kind of negative outcome. And then as you do that again and again, you ultimately come to forget that lust or adultery or unrighteous anger, any of those things was ever prohibited to begin with. And rather than being justified by God, you attempt to justify yourself. And the catch in your conscience that once existed disappears. Here's the story that Scripture paints in Genesis, that this one specific sin of eating the fruit has specific ramifications for the man and the woman. They do surely die. And they face many other hardships. But... Church, it also has general ramifications for the entire world. Because what comes out of all of this, according to Genesis, is a curse. That quite literally, the trauma, the pain, uh, illness, hurt that you've experienced is not first and foremost the direct result of something you've done, but maybe first and foremost, a 
general consequence of the curse of sin that our world is under. So we have all experienced things like I'm describing today. We've all experienced pain and loss and hurt. But here's what we also have to realize. While what I said just now may be true, when it comes to the curse of sin, each of us is both a victim and a perpetrator. We have all been sinned against by people under the curse, and we have sinned against others as people under the curse. In other words, we are all people in need of a Savior. But here's the deal. My need for a Savior is not tied directly to your sin um, or to the things that people have done to me. My need for a Savior is tied directly to the fact that I am a sinner. My own sin. The thing that I most need deliverance from is not first other people or the world itself, but myself. I need a Savior to save me from me. And I could go for days on the times in Scripture when a person's specific sin has specific ramifications in their life, where they see the effects of sin in their own life. A classic example is King David, right? He has an affair with a woman who's not his wife, married to another man. She becomes pregnant. David has her husband murdered, and there are serious ramifications that come from those actions. The child that he's fathered with her dies. Pull it into the New Testament. We see the story of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 2, who give in to greed and lie to the church concerning financial giving, and both of them drop dead. So the Bible tells us and shows us on numerous occasions that the stated consequence for sin all the way back in Genesis is the same thing today as it was back then for the man and the woman in the garden. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. But also to be fair, we're not talking about karma here. People don't always immediately get what they deserve. God does thankfully extend grace in this life, even to those who don't know him, who don't worship him. Thus you have situations where evil people seem to flourish in this world, where wonderful things seem to happen to bad people. Reference Jesus' story of the rich man and Lazarus. But while that may last for a season, Scripture is clear, it does not last for eternity. And God's justice will prevail. Now, here's what we don't have the ability to do. We don't have the ability to look at a person's specific situation and connect it to specific sin in their life. And I think Jesus would indicate to us that that shouldn't even be something on our mind, that we should be so preoccupied with the quote-unquote log in our own eye that we don't even have time or attention to give to what may be the speck of dust in your eye. And, and we don't have the ability to judge that rightly, even if we do give our attention to it. And yet we do this every day, don't we? 
right? It's like on autopilot within us that we make judgment calls about people, that we do stereotype people, that we do assume things about people because of who they are or what their skin color is or what their socioeconomic level is. But we don't have the ability to judge honestly or rightly or justly. Now, we can speak generally, and we can say that any bad or negative thing in our lives or in the world around us is a general result of sin. It's a result of this curse, or what I simply often call the brokenness of our world. But I can't say, well, you broke your leg when you were 13 because you lied to your parents about this other thing, right? I don't have the ability to do that. But I can say, we live in a world where people break their legs and experience great pain because our world is under a curse. So, in a general sense, yes, the sin in our life, the hurt, the heartache, the things we've experienced are a result of the brokenness of our world. And yes, there are times where Scripture indicates that people see ramifications for specific sins in their life. But I also said, not necessarily. Get this. While bad things in your life may be rooted in the general brokenness of our world, they are not necessarily the result of specific sin in your life. And Jesus makes this clear. I mentioned earlier the uh, kind of partner passage, the partner healing to this text in John 5. It's in John 9. Let me just read this to you real quick. John 9, 1 through 3. It says, as he, Jesus, passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, it was not that the this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Man, isn't that fascinating? Jesus says this man didn't do anything to result in his blindness. His parents didn't do anything to result in his blindness, but God has intentions in his blindness. There's a lot there to unpack, and we will when we get to chapter 9. But let's also consider Luke 13 this morning, 1 through 5. It says, There were some present at that very time who told him, again Jesus, about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you all will likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Two situations come up in that exchange, the details of which are unknown to us, but something happened with Pontius Pilate where maybe he killed some Jews while they were offering sacrifice, and then there's what seems to be some sort of horrific accident in which a tower fell and crushed some people, and so Jesus is being asked about these situations, and and what Jesus seems to be speaking to is the notion that these things happened to these people because they were especially heinous sinners. That they died in the way that they died because their sin was especially great. And what Jesus says is, no, everyone is a sinner. 
If you think these people were worse than you or more deserving of what happened than you are, you're wrong. I mean, this is the, this is the Hurricane Katrina ideology. Yeah, well, that place is really bad. No, no, no. What Jesus says is everyone is under this curse. Everyone is in need of a Savior. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Do you think you're better than them? Jesus told the invalid at the pool of Bethesda, stop sinning so nothing worse happens to you. I mean, this guy's been immobile seemingly for 30-something years. What worse could happen to him? The answer is this, that he be outside of Christ forever. Paul said, for the wages of sin is death, as I mentioned. But, he says, the gift of God is eternal life. Or in John's words, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Guys, the curse of, sins rema- curse of sin remains, but scripture is clear Jesus is the cure, and he's not one of the cures. He is the only cure. And this is part of the case that the Apostle John is making here in his gospel, that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. He is the way instead of not the way, right? He is the truth instead of lies. He is the life instead of death. If you want those things, there is nothing else. There is no other pathway or doorway. And this is at the heart of the gospel message. In Jesus coming and dying and rising and ascending, in all of these things, hope is extended to us through him. And that may seem ludicrous to you to say something like, you will not perish, because everybody dies, right? Right? Everybody dies. How can we say you will not die? We can say that because we serve a Savior who rose from the dead. And what Scripture says is there are two levels of death, guys. We're thinking primarily in physical terms, but Scripture says there is physical death and there is spiritual death. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 28, And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. The claim of Scripture is that through Christ, you will not experience this total death of body and soul, but rather you will be with Christ forever, and that even though your temporal body may one day die, get this, the one who was raised from the dead will also raise our bodies from the dead and glorify them and perfect them, and we will be with him body and soul eternally. What Jesus is calling this man at the pool to, guys, is repentance. Turn, change, be different, recognize this way, this truth, this life. As he said to the woman at the well in the last chapter, I have living water, and if you drink the water, you're never going to be thirsty again. And that is the call that he is extending to all of us today as well. 
even those of us who already know him, his call remains, right? That we turn from our sin, that we confess it, that we give it over to him, and that we give more and more and more control of our very existence to him. It is the call that is at the center of baptism that we have the great honor and joy of celebrating today. It is the call that we will celebrate as we welcome new believers into the family of Christ today. So let us go to him in prayer this morning. Let us thank him that even though we are born into this broken world, even though we are born under this curse of sin, even though we ourselves are sinners, that God has made a way for that not to be our fate. God has made a way for it not to be the thing that condemns us forever. But instead, not through our good actions alone or through simply thinking the right things, but instead through the body and blood of Christ that we also can die to sin and be raised to walk in new life. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your grace and love. Thank you that even when we encounter uh, challenging questions like this, that I am not even fully equipped to answer in ways that maybe please everybody. That, Father, in spite of the things we don't understand fully, that you are good and loving. And we confess that this morning, and we give you thanks and praise for the gospel itself, for the hope that has been extended to us through Christ, and through the beauty of these sacraments that you've given us as a way of extending grace to us that we might encounter you and experience you in baptism and in Holy Communion. We thank you, Lord, for that incredible privilege. Thank you for calling us your own, even though we are undeserving. Thank you for cleansing us and changing us. And may we also be inspired today to continue to turn from our sin and to put it to death and to seek to emulate the way of Jesus in the whole of our lives. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.